This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Time Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Anthony Appiah teaches philosophy at New York University. I'm glad you're with us, Anthony. So am I. (laughs) (laughs) I'm especially glad since you've been traveling so much. Thanks. And Kenji Yoshino, teaching law at New York University, also on the road a lot. I'm glad you're here. Glad to be with you, Amy. Coming up, we'll take reader questions about how to help someone who doesn't want help, what kind of tide really does lift all boats, and how to judge a crime and a character. Before we get started, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners. We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Panoply to make great podcasts about the things you love and things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm slash survey, or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm slash survey, or click the link in the show notes, and thank you. All right. Our first question. Dear ethicists, I live in a neighborhood of predominantly single-family homes in Southern California. One of the neighbors is a single parent with three children, one of whom is starting junior year of high school. When they first moved in last summer, the adolescent was using the converted garage for social gatherings with multiple teenagers visiting, parking their cars in the alley, which is expressly forbidden by posted signs, and underage drinking. The mother was approached and tried to deal with it as best she could, but essentially told us that we should talk to her child because she has been ineffective. The summer is here again, and although the cars are no longer in the alleyway, the partying has resumed and our trash can was filled with beer cans this morning so that the parent would not be aware. I think that this is an accident waiting to happen. The police have taken reports but have been unable to change the behavior, and the mother continues to often be an absentee parent. What would you do as your next step? I was so angry this morning that I wanted to dump the evidence on her front porch. Thanks so much. Name withheld, California. So what's interesting about this dilemma for me is that the writer is caught, as I think we all are, in an era of shifting norms. Uh, Some decades ago, I think the norm was definitely more towards the it-takes-a-village-to-raise-a-child variety, where a neighbor could discipline another neighbor's child directly. And now I think we're all supposed to sort of bow down and say, you know, we can't discipline any other uh, neighbor's child, and the norm has decisively shifted. For at least a couple of reasons, I think the it-takes-a-village model obtains here. First, the parent has effectively enlisted your help. And second, the nature of the problem is such that no individual can really address it alone. And I want to be really clear what I take the problem to be. You know, the writer has several objections, but for me, the most noble and elevated one is to prevent drinking and driving, the accident waiting to happen, in the words of the letter writer. So Surgeon General's report notes that 45% of those who are killed in drunk driving accidents are not the driver, which is one of the many pieces of data that leads that report to conclude that this is everyone's problem. So as a first port of call, I would really encourage the letter writer to enlist the help of other neighbors and go as a cadre or a group of parents to the single parents uh, home and to offer assistance rather than uh, coming down on her in some other way. Uh, What do you two think? 
I think it's nice to offer the assistance. I don't think this is a situation in which the mother has said, oh, I would love to enlist the support of the village. I think uh, this is a case in which the mother has said, I'm not getting anywhere with this kid. Feel free to talk to the kid, Um, which is not the same as saying, I'd really like your help in managing the situation. And like you, Kenji, I also hear that there's more than one concern. There's the elevated concern which is, I don't want there to be drinking and driving. Um, then there are the legal concerns, which is these kids are underage and they're parking where they shouldn't be parking, which is a sort of greater concern and a sort of minor concern, but they are both issues of illegal behavior. Um, and I think that the letter writer, you know, you're entitled to be really annoyed by this and you're entitled to ask the cops if they could do a slow roll late at night to maybe clear out the partiers. Um, And I think getting together with the neighbors is a good idea. And what I would say is to ask the mother to meet with you and a couple of the neighbors and also ask the kid to join you as well. Um, And then I think you have to tell the kid that you're not going to tolerate this behavior, um, that regardless of whether his or her mother um, is resigned to being ineffective, that the neighbors are not, and that the police will be called regularly about the partying and the mess and the underage drinking, because that can be a real problem for the kids. I was interested in the fact that the the letter writer thinks that um, that the police, nothing the police have done is making any difference. And I wonder if that just means that uh, you haven't yet... Uh, <laughs> made the police do enough. I mean, this right. is a it is a crime to organize a party at which people under a certain age are drinking. And it's a crime. It's not a victimless crime in general because of the risks associated with the behavior of drunken people who are not yet practiced in, in the consumption of alcohol. So um, I do think that uh, if the police haven't change the behavior that suggests they haven't done enough. And I mean, unless this person, this this child is a sort of, uh, you know, uh, committed lifelong criminal and doesn't <laughs> care about this sort of thing, the the fact of being hauled before a, you know, a juvenile court and told uh, that you've done something wrong, I think might be the sort of thing that would that would make a difference. What, what Kenji said at the start about changing norms makes me want to say that, you know, I grew up in a place where, I grew up in, in Kumasi in Ghana, in a place where um, every adult... Uh, was um, auntie this or uncle that, and everybody uh, was in charge of you. You had absolutely no right as a child to ignore the uh, suggestions, advice, admonishment uh, of other adults. And um, I think that that was one of the reasons why we all felt so safe. And and when I say we, I include my parents who felt that, well, we could wander around, but there would always be somebody looking out for us. I I don't know whether it's possible to shift the norm back, but I sort of feel that it would be worth at least having a a conversation, uh, if not just in the country, maybe uh, in California, about whether it it isn't the wrong way to have gone and whether it isn't better for young people to have relationships with more adults than their parents, uh, relationships in which they can learn and in which they can be advised. It seems oh, like I we're. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I totally agree with that too. Yeah. But, uh, and it seems like um, let, let me float something to see how how deeply are we converge because it seems to me like uh, first of all the to answer the direct question, can I dump my uh, the empty bottles that have been left in my garbage uh, can onto the neighbor's porch as a kind of wake up call? This to me seems like um, not a helpful uh, response. I realize that 
the letter writer was saying, in the heat of anger, I thought about doing this. Uh, it seems to me that that just uh, raises the temperature on the situation. So that seems to me not to be uh, the right solution. So, Agreed. Y- yes. Yeah, absolutely you, agree. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's not the right solution. I think, I mean, I think the idea that you, if you can get another neighbor who is uh, concerned, you meet with the mother and the kid, because um, the mother has made it really pretty clear that she is not an effective communicator with the kid. Um, you tell the kid what's going to happen if this party takes place again. You tell them that you'll be calling the police regularly. You see if that works. And if that doesn't work, you um, you then step up your contact with the police, it seems to me. But there's no reason to put the beer cans on the porch. But one of the, one of the themes seems like there's, you know, we, we want to be compassionate towards uh, the single parent with three children. You know, I, you know, we have two kids and I can't even imagine <laughs> what it would be like to parent three kids of my own. So, so my sympathies immediately went towards the single parent. I have to, I have to confess, but it also seems to me that there needs to be a gradual kind of escalation. You know, I'm concerned about yeah. going to the police too quickly here. No, I think first you go, well, they've already been to the mother. Then you, I think you get maybe one other neighbor because although I think a cadre can be effective with the police, I think it's pretty overwhelming in a personal situation. You know, so you, you don't really want to go to the lady and her kid with like nine neighbors. <laughs> with a posse. <laughs> with a posse, because that just, you know, conjures up kind of the tortures and pitchforks. So I think that you just go with one neighbor and the four of you sit down and you express your concerns and what will be happening next. It's not like the kid doesn't know what's going on. It's not, this is not a six-year-old. It's a 16-year-old. So this kid knows perfectly well that they're committing a crime and that they're, you know, underage drinking. And it might be pretty reasonable for the kid to extrapolate that most adults are going to be like his or her mother, who basically is resigned. And I, I don't say that critically. I, I understand. You've got three kids. You've just moved. You know, um, you're you're hardworking. It's hard to be everywhere at once. But a parent who says to a neighbor who expresses concern, I haven't had any luck communicating with my kid, you go ahead and try, is also somebody who's pretty resigned to not being very effective with the kid. So I think we all agree that you start with the um, family and you try to focus on your more elevated concerns, which is the possibility of drinking and driving and on the illegal action. And eventually, if you need to, you gather up a small group of concerned neighbors, if you have them, and go to the police. All right, let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, the health center where I work serves a mostly low-income population, and the majority of our patients are covered by Medicaid. We also have patients with private insurance, and the money paid to us by those insurance companies help to fund low-cost or free services, social work, behavioral health, nutrition, for all of our patients. With the increased push towards data-driven health care, some private health insurers are offering significant sums of money if we meet certain benchmarks for their patients. The health center is asking us to spend extra time and resources trying to improve the quality of care for privately insured patients, making extra phone calls to get them to come in for their mammogram, for example, in the hopes that this will translate into extra funds that can be used for the good of all of our patients. We will not be denying anyone care, but the increased attention paid to certain patients will likely result in better outcomes for that population. 
The increased funding that comes from the system may result in improved health outcomes for all of our patients, including those with Medicaid. However, it makes me extremely uncomfortable to think that we may be providing different levels of care to our patients based on their socioeconomic status. This seems like a slippery slope that can only accelerate health disparities over the long run. I imagine that health centers across the country are dealing with similar issues. What's the most ethical response to this dilemma? Thanks for your thoughts. E.L., Massachusetts. I think that um, it's important here to see that what is implicit in this question is a conflict between two ideals, right? One ideal is an ideal of um, just equality of treatment, that everybody gets the same, uh, whatever, their, uh, whatever their resources that are available to them. The other ideal is improving the quality of healthcare. And in this case, it turns out that these things pull in different directions. And my own view, uh, but not, you know, this is a topic on which uh, people disagree a good deal. My own view is that provided the uh, inequalities, the extra attention, uh, in the end redounds to the benefit of the worst off in this system, then you are, it's okay. And that, by the way, that's a, that principle, it's actually got a name. It, it, it's, um, it's a principle that uh, the philosopher John Rawls came up with. It's called the difference principle. It says that it's okay to have inequalities provided the system, which includes the inequality, uh, benefits the worst off. And that's exactly how this health clinic is thinking about the situation. They're saying, yeah, we will concede to the private health insurers these things because as a result of it, we get resources that will help us deal uh, with the people who have less. So I think that's okay. But But I understand the pressure in the other direction. And I think you might feel that um, it's a bit odd to respond as I just did, because you might think, well, but isn't the question the right question to ask about the fairness of the whole system? And I agree, there is a question about the fairness of the whole system. I myself think that some form of uh, single-payer insurance system would would be fairer. But given the situation of this health centre, given the constraints on them, given that they don't control the background system of insurance, it seems to me they're thinking about it in the best possible way. I also think it's possible, or at least I would hope that it's possible, to engage the health centre in, um, in this issue of offering... Um, in some sense, more amenities. It's not a question of the actual medical care, thank God, as far as I can tell. Um, But it is offering a different level of attentiveness, of concern, um, of nice things, of amenities. And um, you can schedule more outreach of the kind that's made to the more affluent patients, but it, it has to be scheduled. Um, And I might try to get the staff together to offer more time and resources of this kind to all of the patients, but then you have to get the health center to support it with money or time off or other incentives. In other words, if you want to try to make it better for everybody, even in the area of amenities, you can either do more of this yourself on your own time and your own dime, which would certainly be the right thing to do, but I would not want to let the healthcare system and in particular your employer, the health uh, center off the hook too easily. Yeah, absolutely. So I learned a lot uh, from both of those interventions because uh, it helped me think about this differently. So uh, I'm imagining now, uh, Anthony, in particular, a diagonal tide, right? <laughs> so it sort of lifts uh, all boats, but it lifts some boats more than others. And so the question is, can you mitigate the slant of the tide? Um, and Amy, you're talking about ways in which the center could do that. 
I would only add that the individual could also, um, the letter writer can also engage in activities that would mitigate the disparity. So if we're talking about, and I loved how granular the letter writer was in talking about um, exactly what kinds of amenities were provided. So if it's about making extra phone calls for privately insured patients to come in and get their mammograms, but not to non-privately insured patients, you can take it on yourself as an ethical person. You know, don't you don't have to you know kill yourself to do this, but you know you could make you know a couple of extra phone calls you know every month you know whenever you make them for privately insured patients uh, for non-privately insured patients as well. Yeah, I think that it's really important that it has to be true that you are, that the changes you're making really do benefit the worst off and that they're the ones that benefit the worst off most. So it's not enough just to say, well, uh, we've done something which gives us more resources and we're spending those resources on the on the people who have the least in this system. It, it has to be true that you couldn't get even more resources uh, by some other change uh, because then you could make the worst off even better off. It isn't enough just, in other words, just to have advantaged the worst off. You have to do the thing that most advantages the worst off if you're going to satisfy the difference principle. Anthony, I just, I just want to break in and say uh, it's not clear to me from the question that the difference principle that you describe would be satisfied because it says that increased funding that comes from the system may result in improved health outcomes for all of our patients, including those with Medicaid. Um, and it strikes me, given the way that you described the Rawls principle, that it would have to be something more along the lines of the system will result yes. in improved health outcomes for all our patients, particularly those with right, Medicaid. right. It has. To, I mean, this is another of these cases where I think I think we our view is look. The, 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 if you want to advance things here, uh, encourage conversation in your institution about these issues so that people can see more clearly what the what the ethically uh, what what the ethically uh, correct um, uh, solution is. I guess what I was worried about, Anthony, was was that I think that you're uh, maybe praising the center too quickly because it strikes me from the letter writer's question that um, we all agree on what should be done, which is that uh, you can take the money so long as you are very clear that it is going to benefit the least well-off patients as well, um, but that it's not clear to me from the letter writer's um, question that that is definitively mm, going to be the right. case. Yeah, so. Yep. So again, if, if they have the discussion, they can get clear about what their aims should be, and then they can uh, help each other to pursue them. Great. Okay. On to our last question. Dear ethicists, my dentist of 22 years is retiring and has sold his practice. I discovered via Google that the dentist taking over from him has a prior shoplifting record, and as a result, the Dental Board of California put her on probation for two years. That just ended, and also mandated community service was part of the restitution agreement. What are my options here? Do I still give them my business or go elsewhere? Shouldn't healthcare professionals be above suspicion, like Caesar's wife? Sincerely, name withheld. I think your options are exactly um, what you think they are, which is you can go to the new dentist or you can find another dentist whom you can also Google and who you can make sure has no uh, prior record of any, you know, crimes of property. Um, I have to say, I love my dentist. My dentist is a great <laughs> dentist. I wouldn't care if my dentist's um, background included shoplifting or even some other minor crime of property. Um, 
So I don't think there's a really uh, strong ethical push here in any way. Your options are pretty clear in terms of healthcare professionals being above suspicion like Caesar's wife. First of all, I want to call your attention to the fact that it wasn't um, Pompeia, Caesar's wife, own feeling that she should be above suspicion. It was this is this is going back a ways for me, but it's Caesar's feeling <laughs> that um, the fact that somebody attempted to seduce her reflected so poorly on him that he would divorce her and refuse to give evidence against the guy because it was important that Caesar's wife should not only be above suspicion, but sort of even beyond that, that um, that her name had been sullied in any, any way was unacceptable to him, um, which I guess is why it was nice to be Caesar. Um, yeah, the simile I, may be more prescient than uh, the letter writer <laughs> yes, intended, yes. right? Because yeah. uh, Caesar's wife was unfairly treated, so we yes. don't want the letter writer to treat the professional unfairly either. Right, that's exactly what I mean. It's like, you know, I don't know why... Um, this would be required. Um, and I certainly hope that it wouldn't lead um, you to publicize the dentist's record. I mean, I realize we have very little interest as a country in the idea of rehabilitation. Um, but, you know, she actually served her time, did what she was supposed to do, um, went through her probationary period, did her community service. And if you don't want to see a healthcare professional that has this in her background. You certainly don't have to, but you also might want to give some thought as to whether or not um, this necessarily tells you what kind of person um, your healthcare professional is. And if you care what kind of person this healthcare professional is, you might want to actually meet her. I, I think I was struck by the thought that... Um, what possible harm could come to you from being treated by a good dentist who has a record for shoplifting? Um, the thought that there is some kind of risk here presumably flows from the idea that someone who'd do that is a sort of bad person. And that, I think, is a really terrible thought. That is, it's terrible psychology. Uh, the idea that uh, one, one sin kind of marks you out as a person who's untrustworthy in every respect is just bad psychology. And it's so bad that there's a name for it, actually. The social psychologists call this the fundamental attribution error. They call it the error of ignoring, supposing that when somebody does something like this, the explanation is that they're a bad person, uh, rather than that um, there's something in their circumstances that has led them to behave badly. And in particular, it's not a good idea to suppose that a person who is, say, dishonest in one context, in an exam, for example, is going to be dishonest in every context, for example, affairs of the heart. So I see no reason to suppose that there's literally any uh, increase in the probability that somebody will treat you badly as a dentist uh, from the fact that um, they have uh, engaged in a, uh, a minor crime of this sort. Um, and given uh, what Amy said about the importance of uh, reintegration, I think, I think um, there's at least a mild ethical reason, though, I, though like Amy, I think you're free to go to whatever dentist you want. There's a mild ethical reason for saying, okay, she, she paid her, she's uh, done her time, she's paid her debt, and um, we should reintegrate her. Yeah, the key thing for me is that the the crime doesn't touch on their professional activity in any way that I can see, and also that the individuals paid, you know, uh, their debt to society. So, yeah, I mean, if this were something like, oh, I googled this individual and I've discovered that, you know, they 
um, have something that might compromise their capacity to be a good dentist. So um, they um, administered too much, you know, anesthesia in a prior thing and were sued for malpractice. That, for me, would be different in kind. But, you know, as Anthony says, I think it's really uh, important that there's there's no nexus in between the, the crime of shoplifting and the how good you are as a dentist. But I, I think I'm more, you know, in the libertarian, I guess, you know, in saying uh, than, than Anthony is and saying, I don't even think that there's a mild ethical obligation to to stay with them. I mean, it might be irrational, but you're perfectly, you know, uh, entitled to go elsewhere if you if you want to to act on that. Yeah, I think that the ethical issue is really the letter writer saying, isn't it ethical for me to take the position that healthcare professionals should be held to the standard that I, the letter writer, have created, which is any criminal record should make you somehow ineligible or under suspicion as a healthcare professional. I think what the three of us are saying is we don't see the connection. And that wish to brand someone as bad because they have done a bad thing um, does not make um, relationships better, the world a better place, and it certainly isn't going to guarantee you a better dentist. Yeah, and and to that, I mean, that's really helpful, Amy, because I, I, I guess another thing I would say here is, you know, doctors, lawyers, you know, professionals of all kinds do have uh, canons of ethics that bind them. So the very idea that this person would be permitted to go back to practicing dentistry or, you know, would be able to not have the shoplifting disqualify them means that according to the lights of their own profession, this is not disqualifying behavior. So, you know, professionals should be held to professional standards. But ethically, I don't think professionals should be held to the standard of, of Caesar's wife. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I, I just want to come back in here to say that um, it's it, it, a certain amount depends on what you count as ethical. But I would have thought that uh, there's at least the following thought might be might count as a sort of ethical thought, which is uh, it's it's not a good idea to be irrational. Uh, one ought not to be <laughs> irrational. And to the extent that there's good reason to think that there's no connection between the uh, the shoplifting and and being a good or a bad dentist, it is. I don't care whether you use the word ethical, but there's a reason not to do that. There's a reason not to do things that are irrational. And I've just given you a good one for thinking that it would be irrational in this case <laughs> if, you, if we've got all the facts. All right. Well, we, the three of us come down strongly on the side of rationality <laughs> and, um, and also of giving people a chance. And that's it for The Ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Carrie Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appia and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.